So we're still in an Advent series, obviously. It's Christmas season, and next week we're going to have our Christmas service on Sunday morning, and then our special uh, Christmas service on Sunday evening with a little kids' performance and whatnot, and it's going to be a good time. But as I continue this message, I want to speak to you this morning about a government without end. And everybody loves when we talk about government. Amen. It's really fun. I know your favorite class was civics class. And so we're going to hash out a little bit of government. I'm even going to give you a little bit of a history lesson because I know how studious you guys are this morning. And, and we're going to jump into that. But see, when we talk about Advent, we're talking about a thing that is loaded. Because, I mean, obviously, all of us, we're waiting. We're waiting on something. Advent means coming. And it has to do with the fact that they were waiting and longing for this Messiah to come. And we're still waiting and longing for this Messiah to return once again, aren't we? And this is constantly in us, and there's something that God does in the waiting. Just like with what Jeremy was saying, he's believing God for healing. But, but listen, even when God doesn't heal, he's doing something in the waiting. There may be types of healing that we don't understand that are going on in another sense. And God does as much or more in the waiting than he does when he actually finally brings in the promise. And, and so we're in this season of waiting, but Israel, they were a nation that had been under bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh and that government. Uh, they had went on and, and, and judges because of their own rebellion in the book of Judges, they came up under other governments and other authorities that enslaved them and put them in bondage. And, and finally, they, they, they're, they're doing a lot better. David had established a throne and a kingdom and Solomon had been a, built a temple for worship to God. But their continual cycle of rebellion led them into exile and they come up under the leadership of an evil empire in Babylon. And they finally came back only to come up under the authority and the rule of a Roman government which Daniel and many other prophets had prophesied and foreseen. But in the middle of that time when they're under all of this pain, all this persecution, all of this bondage and this slavery, prophets continued to give them promises. And Isaiah gave some of the best promises. In, in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, verses 2 through 7, here's what he ends up saying. And he's talking about the fact that they're getting ready to go into exile into Babylon. And he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And notice what he says. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's bow our heads and pray over this word just for a moment. Father, we thank You so much for Your zeal. God, your zeal to perform exactly what you promised in your word and to us. And Lord, I believe that you are fulfilling those promises even before our eyes. And when we look at the world in the darkness, God, the good news is, is that in the midst of this darkness, a great light has shined into our hearts. And we're not like the rest of the world who does not have hope, God, but we have hope in you because we believe not only have you come to defeat sin and the powers of death and darkness and Satan himself, God, but you are coming again to establish a government that has no end in which righteousness reigns and dwells. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you this morning. 
morning because in this moment, God, we know that you are the wonderful counselor and you bring a peace that this world doesn't give. And so, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters out in western Kentucky that are dealing with all kinds of suffering right now. And God, that you would bring that comfort, you would bring that peace. And Lord, to hearts that are uh, afflicted and anxious this morning, God, that through your word you would bring peace and healing and wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. So Advent, like we said, it calls us to wait on God. And there's an angst, isn't there? I mean, every single one of us are waiting for something. I mean, like even this time of year at the end of a semester, you see people, they're just waiting to get through the semester. How many of you finished up and you're like, praise God, I've been waiting on that forever, hallelujah. And it's a good feeling, isn't it? Because you were waiting on that accomplishment to be done because it put stress on you, it put anxiety on you. Some of you young folks, you're just waiting for a relationship to develop with a significant other, you know what I'm saying? Everybody's always waiting on something. Some people are waiting for this, 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 this torment in their, this affliction in their body or in their mind to be dealt with. All of us are always waiting on something. And Advent is that time where we get to tap into that angst. And, and, and can I tell you that God is with us in that waiting and in the midst of that angst that we have. It's a holy angst because we're waiting on something to break in. We're waiting on God to break in. And God, at the right time in every one of the, our situations in our lives, He knows just when to break in and how to break in. But what I want to talk about this morning is, is a little bit more interesting because when God breaks in initially, if you look at the prophecies, a lot of these prophecies had to do with government and how a king would reign and how he would vanquish his enemies. And so all the people in Israel, they were waiting on a political leader to arise to set up a new government. And when Jesus shows up, he didn't do it exactly the way that they wanted to do. But can I tell you that Jesus' birth was politically subversive. Anybody like that word this morning, right? We love politics in here, don't we? Amen. Everybody's, you know, political junkies a lot of times now, nowadays. And here's, here's the thing. We, it's important, I think, that we are involved in our nation and we're involved in trying to, to, to do what we can to make sure that our leaders are reigning in righteousness, if at all possible, by what little measure of influence that we have. We, we are to pray for our leaders. We want good leaders. But see, the problem is that the Scripture Scripture reveals is that ultimately there ain't nobody that can carry this government on their shoulders except for this child that is to be born. And so they're looking, they're waiting for somebody to carry this government on their shoulders, to set things right, to make sure the economy's good, to make sure that, 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 that trade is good, to make sure that, that, that justice prevails, that people are taken care of, that the poor and needy are taken care of. And Jesus shows up at a time when politics was a little bit tumultuous. I got to be honest with you. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, let me give you a little, one little verse that will unlock a lot for us. It says, and it came to pass in those days, this is right before Jesus was born. This is what caused Mary and Joseph to have to go back to their hometown, which would lead Jesus to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies. But it says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, it's important you know a little bit about this dude to set things in context. But it says, This decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, at that time, the Roman Empire had essentially taken over, man. They, were, they had taken over in Jerusalem. They had taken over throughout all of Mesopotamia, all throughout the world. And so when they said this, it was kind of interesting because they were a little bit like America. They believed in national exceptionalism. Because they said the whole world was going to be taxed even though it wasn't going out to the aboriginal people in Australia. It wasn't going out to the indigenous Native Americans. But yet they said all the world because as far as they were concerned, Rome was the world. 
They had that kind of pride about themselves. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Roman Empire was extensive, man, and it was expanding, and they were literally taking over the world during that time. But let me give you just a little bit of history about the Roman Empire. Now, I know this could be boring to you, but if you listen to me, you're going to get something out of it, I promise. Now, the Roman Empire, let me give you just a little bit of Roman history. Pre-49 B.C., Rome was a republic, a lot like America. Like they, got, they, got a, they had a senate. They'd try to vote people into office. You know what I'm saying? They had checks and balances, which is, a, a, a contrary to popular belief, a really good thing. Checks and balances are good because basically what checks and balances do is it, 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 it basically believes that at the root of every human being, they're corrupt. And if you don't hold them in check... They're going to probably do something tyrannical and take over and do something dangerous. And so Rome was a republic until 49 B.C. And Julius Caesar is the emperor at that time. And he was a military general. And he comes to this place where he says, you know what, boys, I'm tired of the Senate. I don't want them to hold me in check. I don't want to have no balances. I declare myself to be the sole ruler in Rome. And that didn't go over very well. Some people was like, man, we like you a lot. You were a Roman general. I mean, we voted for you in the beginning and all this, even though they didn't vote for the emperor. It was a family thing. But they said, we support you, but we got to hold you in check. And a civil war broke out over the next several years. And there was fighting going on until finally, if you've ever seen, heard the play Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare, right? What happens, right? The Senate comes in, assassinates Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., the, some of the senators, senators assassinated him, and his nephew Octavius got the throne. Now for about 10 years, Octavius goes out and he's killing off everybody that is a, is a rival to him, right? And so he's killing off everybody for about 10 years. And then finally in 27 B.C., Octavius takes full control and the Roman Republic becomes the Roman Empire in 27 BC, right before Jesus is born. And Octavius is given a name at that point, and his name is Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, during the time of Jesus, everything's setting up. God is even using wicked plans of the devil to set everything up to make sure that prophecy is fulfilled. And Caesar Augustus says, You know, we got to get some more taxes out of these people. I got to build some stuff. You know what I'm talking about? So we got to have everybody go to their hometown so nobody slips through the tax and we pinch every penny out of every person that we can that's available. And Caesar Augustus does this. But here's what's so interesting about Caesar Augustus Augustus literally means worthy of worship. We sing that song, you are worthy of it all. Well, guess what? They sang the same song, in a sense, to Caesar Augustus. He was worthy of worship. Now, if, you, if you've got a map of, of the empire, because once they established this rule, they had been, I mean, there was bloodshed all over the empire. Everywhere you see color is where the Roman Empire was expanding at different times. And the dark, dark green is where actually Caesar Augustus was expanding more and more. And so for those many years, they were under such bloodshed and war and carnage that they finally get together and they say, boys, how can we unite people from Africa, from the Middle East, from Europe? How can we actually unite these people over such a broad place and they said well there's no way like you uniting people like creating a common religion that's what they said and so they said this man now is named Caesar Augustus he is worthy of worship he's worthy of praise he is the divine emperor and they actually said of him that he was the Lord and Savior of the world they said of him that he was the bringer of peace. He instituted the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. And basically what it meant is, is if you didn't obey all of his mandates, he'd kill you. But that was peace. 
We come in peace. You obey us, everything is peaceful. You don't obey us, you die. Amen. Sounds pretty good, like a good plan. And they actually kept peace, but they kept peace through terror. It was a false peace. Scripture talks over and over again about how that the world leaders come in offering a peace, talking about peace, but ultimately the peace that they offer is not the same peace that this King Jesus brings. But they called him the bringer of peace. He brought in what was called the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, and they called him literally the Son of God, and they spoke of him and said, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I found a writing because what they would do is they'd set up statues of this guy everywhere. Everywhere you go, you'd see statues of him. You'd see plaques with certain things written on them. And there was one statue during this time that was erected. And underneath it, it said something like this, which was translated. And so here's what it said if you want to put that up for me. It says, Divine Emperor, Lord and Savior, Son of God, Bringer of Peace. The most divine Caesar... We should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor Augustus, whom it filled with strength for the welfare of men and who being sent to us and our descendants as savior. Notice the names it's given him has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas, finally, the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. And that word in the Greek is euangelion, which is the word we call gospel. Concerning him, therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. So, you know, there was a scholar that said, y'all, you, you, think, you think this is just kind of a joke. And you think us modern people in America think, well, they said all that stuff, but they didn't really mean it. But see, there was a scholar named N.T. Wright. He said not only was belief in the emperor being divine at that moment, at that time among the majority, he said it was both obvious and uncontroversial. He was worshipped throughout the empire. And matter of fact, if you didn't worship, like when you passed by, they had guards standing at these places to make sure you paid homage to the emperor and did what the emperor said. And he was worthy of worship and you had to exalt him as such. Now, this was crazy because they would institute festivals and worship and they would say, you know what? He has brought good news. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior who has won the battle. That's insane. When I first started reading about this stuff sometime back, it blew my mind because I'm reading what they're saying in Scripture and I'm measuring up against what's going on in the world at that time when Jesus was born. And I'm thinking, man, this is the most politically subversive thing I've ever heard of. Because when the angels show up and when the, the angels come to Mary, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 and 35, they know, guess what, that at that time God has, has brought about and allowed things to happen in such a way that Caesar Augustus is the emperor and the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And, his, and Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. They're saying this guy's going to be the true Savior. 
You know that stuff about Caesar Augustus being the Savior? This dude is actually going to be the real Savior. And then he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And notice what it says. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, in the context of the Roman Empire, that was treasonous. These angels are coming down here and stirring up political unrest. You know what I'm talking about? This is the kind of thing that if you said publicly, you know, cops would show up at your door and check out on you and see, make everything, or were you the one who tweeted this? <laughs> were you the one that said this? And they would censor you, you know, from saying any of this stuff like this. They didn't want you saying anything. And so because the Roman emperor demanded total allegiance and they would not tolerate any possible rivals. And so then the angels show up to the shepherds who are afraid. And the angels said to them, the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 10 through 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you what? Good news. The gospel. Euangelion, the same word they would use for whenever the emperor did something awesome. He said, this is the true good news, and it's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They go on to say in Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, it says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth... Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And that is politically subversive because they would say that the peace of Rome came on whomever Augustus' favor rested. And the angel is overturning this and say, Do you not recognize that Satan himself is trying to raise up a false government with a false king, with a false god, with a false ruler? And I'm telling you right now that the one that is to be born is the true bringer of peace. He's the one who brings the true gospel. He's the true Lord and Savior. And he he will establish a kingdom. Caesar's kingdom will come to an end. Caesar is a fake, but this boy that's born, this boy right here is going to establish a kingdom and that kingdom will never end. And see, this changes everything. It is, it is totally subversive because what God comes in and does is He says, yeah, I want to show up and I want to restore you back into relationship with God. I want to pay for your sins so that you can be forgiven. Yes, uh, whenever you ask about what Jesus came to do, these are all correct things. And, and, and He wanted to give us a relationship with God. He wanted to do all of these things. But one of the most important things that Jesus came to do was He came to bring in an alternative kingdom with an alternative king. We don't serve the kings of this world, folks. We don't serve the kingdoms of this world. We serve a kingdom that is an alternative to the kingdoms of this world because every kingdom, including Caesars and Rome and every empire throughout history, and can I tell you, even America itself will fall. Do I want America to fall? No, I pray. I pray that, that our nation could be the best that it could possibly be. But the problem is, is that every nation at its root has corrupt leaders who are influenced by the demonic, my friends. And we see that happening right now in our world. And we pray, Lord, let our leaders turn from their wicked ways and let them follow Jesus. But can I tell you right now, people say, well, you know, these, these government officials and these politicians, they need our support. Can I tell you that more than they need our support is they need our witness. 
More than they need our support, they need to see Christians who believe in a coming kingdom in which righteousness dwells. They need us to tell them about Jesus. Because there's this thing, well, let's just try to toe the line and do some good things. Can I tell you, I want what's best for this nation. I believe that even God does too, but there are corrupt leaders in place and they don't follow Jesus. And you and I follow Jesus. And our allegiance as Christians first and foremost should be to the kingdom of God. That's where our allegiance is first and foremost. And see, that right there is politically subversive. That right there is even subversive among most American Christians. Because your allegiance first is probably to America at the end of the day. Somebody amen me this morning. You bow down to the flag before you bow down to Jesus. And again, do not get me wrong. It's important that we support our nation. It's important, honestly, that we support all nations. We want people to know Jesus. We want righteousness and human flourishing to prevail. But the problem is, is that the people of this world and the leaders that come into place are all false. They can't carry the government on their shoulders. We want them to. Now, there's been good leaders throughout history, and every now and then God, by His mercy, grants us a good leader who does a lot better than some of the others. Amen. And I know some of you already don't like this. You've about tuned me out because you're like, well, you ought to preach the good news of the Republican Party or something like that. And y'all, I'm Republican. You know what I'm saying? I'm politically conservative. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, I'm just trying to tell you that my man is Jesus. So here's the thing. All of that stuff takes a back seat. And this is important because he came to establish an upside-down kingdom, a new world order that will ultimately transform the entire planet. And Jesus is not of the Republican Party. He's not going to show up and say, you know what, boys? Now we're going to get the Republican Party to take over the whole world. He ain't going to do that. He's going to vanquish all parties, and there's going to be one party as the children of God and the kingdom of God worshiping the true king who is on his throne. All parties will be put down. And here's the thing. If you get too tied into one thing right here and now and you're not tied in and rooted into who this king is, you're going to miss it in one direction or the other. You're going to miss it in one direction or the other. It's not time to get so rooted and grounded in politics that we forget who our true king is. And So there is an alternative king and an alternative way of life. And here's the thing about Jesus' kingdom. When He comes, it doesn't put anyone in bondage. It doesn't impose sentences on anyone. It forgives. It heals. It sets people free from wounds and self-destructive sin. It breaks every chain and sets the captives free. And it sets you free to actually love and forgive your enemies. This is a, All the kingdoms of the world throughout history, they gained power over people through violence, through subjugation. This kingdom shows up and this king shows up and they're afraid that he's going to take over and that's what the Jewish people want him to do. But instead of taking over, what does he do? He self-sacrificially lays down his life he said this is an upside down kingdom this is an upside down kingdom this isn't you're not going to take over the way that you think you're going to take over you're not going to take over through violence and power the bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing perishing they don't understand it because a king shouldn't die a king should rule a king should take over a king should make everybody submit But this king simply lays down his life and while we are crucifying him and murdering him, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
And the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus invites you and he says, I know that all the kingdoms of this world are going half crazy and they fight for your allegiance, but I'm asking you now for your allegiance. I'm asking you to follow me in self-sacrificial, self-giving, other-oriented love. And if you are willing to lay down your life for this cause, you like me will be raised from the dead and you will inherit an eternal kingdom. Because all of the kingdoms of this world, your favorite party, your favorite politician, they will die and go into the ground. And just like you and I, if they do not know Jesus, they will inherit no kingdom. Amen. Amen. This is a good word for us. Gives us a little bit of a reality check. He's saying Augustus is not the true king. All of these political leaders are not the true king. And like we said, some of them need our support. But more than anything, they need our witness. They need to know Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. So Isaiah, you see this, that Jesus is born into this context with a literal world leader who's being worshipped as God. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? Do you know that in the end, when Jesus comes back on the scene, the same thing will be true? When Jesus returns a second time, there will be another world leader who is literally worshipped as God. You say, that's just crazy. I don't see how that could ever happen. It happened over and over again in history. The reason Christians died at such a massive rate within the first few hundred years of the church was because they would not worship the emperor. And he killed them for it. Because they were worshiping the true king. And I wonder if it happened today, how many of us followers of Christ would actually worship the true king? Or would we bow our knee to the systems of this world, the powers of this world, hoping and trusting in the powers of this world? See, when Isaiah shows up, there was a great darkness over Israel, the same way that there's a great darkness over our world. And he said, look, you're going to go into exile. You're going to go through some suffering. He says, there's going to be some darkness for a season. You're going to go through some pain and heartache. But this light is coming. This joy is coming. Healing is coming. Provision is coming. And all of this stuff is coming through a child. That's what he says. It's all going to come through a child, and this child's name is going to be Jesus. And in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, 6, we read it, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And see, Advent reminds us of this, because when the world starts going half crazy, y'all, you'll put your hope in anything. You think that a political leader or medical science or something out there in this world is going to come in and save the day. What it reveals is deep down in your heart, you have a need for the security and the salvation and the hope that only Jesus can bring. But you look everywhere and the world offers you something. Man, they offer you this new politician. They offer you medical silence. They say, oh, by this vaccine, it's going to take care of everything. Yeah. All these things that you put your hope in, that you think is going to bring salvation, they will not bring ultimate salvation. And let me just say this for a moment. Let's just say for a moment that there is a political leader that comes in in the next election, and he does bring in medical science, and there's a vaccine that works and vanquishes all sicknesses, and he sets the economy back in place, and everybody's flourishing, and we got more money than we know what to deal with. At the end of the day, there will still be anxious, sinful hearts that need Jesus. They can set everything right that you wanted and everything you've been praying for and believing for for your political scheme and worldview. And at the end of the day, there are still hearts that will not be fulfilled, that will still be broken, that will still be full of anxiety. And they'll still be arguing and bickering and there'll still be divisions across the aisle that even splits the church. 
And there'll still be hearts that need Jesus. And that's where it comes to because when Jesus comes on the scene, it says, unto us a child is born. And this is the child that we need to put our hope and our trust in. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And see, we see his attributes in what Isaiah reads and what awaits us when Christ is fully reigning on his throne, but also what is available to us right now as we wait for his return. He says there's a salvation that's coming through a child. And he gives us his very own son. And notice about his attributes and the qualities that he possesses, the abilities that he possesses. I'm going to go through five really quickly. Number one, he will carry the government on his shoulders. And I've already mentioned this very clearly. But see, in the, in, in the, I mean, how many of you all right now are currently happy with the politics of America? There ain't nobody happy. Were you happy four years ago? Some of you say, well, I was a lot more happy. <laughs> I was. I, I get that. I get. But really, at the end of the day, we just, sort of get, we just sort of get sucked into this battle of a pendulum swinging. Democrat to Republican. Warring, division, hating this group, hating that group. And we lose the kingdom mentality of self-sacrificial love that seeks not to advance America so much as we advance the gospel. America has always flourished when there were gospel principles at its core. And the more those things have eroded and the more we've got our eyes off of Jesus, the more America itself has eroded. The more we look to Jesus, the more we will see flourishing in our land, in our communities, and in our government. When we don't look to Jesus and we start looking to other leaders or other ideologies, that's when we start to see more corruption and more destruction. And so it's a pull back to Jesus because he's the only one upon whom the government can rest on their shoulders. And when he comes, he's going to speak. He's going to heal our divisions. His words will be like a two-edged sword that will cut. And like I said before, there's going to be one political party called the children of God. And I'm going to be excited about it. I mean, some of y'all, I wonder if you even try to witness to a Democrat. You know what I'm talking about this morning? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just cutting at you a little bit. Here in southeastern Kentucky, I mean, we, we, we label ourselves by blue state, red state. I get that. I, I, I get into the political stuff sometimes too. But I'm telling you, every time I begin to pray about our situation, the Lord says, son, you need to decontaminate yourself from that. Because when you stand up and you preach, you're preaching a kingdom that has nothing to do with blue or red. It has to do with the kingdom of God. It transcends blue and red. It's stronger than it. It's got deeper roots than it. And I came not to boost a political party. I came to establish my kingdom. These kingdoms are going to fall and everything else is going to fall, but the government with him is going to never end and it's going to last forever. And it says, number two, that he will counsel us wonderfully. And we need this. We need this counsel because I'm just like anybody else. I get caught up in this stuff. Matter of fact, I mean, there are times I got buddies in here that I talk to about politics and we get tore up sometimes. Anybody amen me? Like it happens. That's us. We're humans because we want good to happen. I don't want our nation to crumble. I don't want crazy things to happen. I want, I want good leaders to make good decisions. And sometimes that drives us crazy, doesn't it? 
And we want righteousness, and I get that. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there's something inherently wrong with us wanting to make good decisions, but I'm telling you at the end of the day, don't allow it to bring you into a place where you put your, something, your trust in something other than Jesus. But see, Jesus comes alongside, and it says that when He reigns, and even right now, do you know that the Bible says that even now when it looks like He's not reigning, still yet all authority in heaven and on earth are given to Him. He's ruling and reigning. We're not waiting on Him to reign. He's reigning now. I know it doesn't look like it, but when he came in the beginning, he didn't come to take over the world politically. He came to take over the world through the human heart. And so now he's looking to establish his throne on my heart and on your heart. And if you will allow him to, he will counsel you wonderfully in some of the darkest seasons of your life. Many of you, you're going through dark seasons right now. You don't know what to do. You don't know what job to take. You don't know if you should move. You don't know what you should do with your children. I mean, the schools are half crazy most of the time. And, and we just don't know what to do. But if you will come to Jesus in the midst of that darkness, He will come and bring you counsel and wisdom and guidance and direction and peace for the decisions that you need to make. I tell people all the time, like, if you're really... Sometimes if I'm really, really aggravated about something... I'll stop and I'll check and I'll ask myself, have you even prayed about this? Because I notice if I will go to the Lord and take that to the Lord and pray about it, there is a peace that surpasses all understanding where He begins to give guidance. For we went to bed last night, Andre and I, we took each other by the hand. There's some things that we were kind of slightly worried about. We lifted it up to the Lord and I believe that as the night went through, He would minister to my soul. Matter of fact, the Bible says in, in Psalm 16, 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And sometimes you need to go through and bypass your anxious mind and your anxious thoughts and know that the Lord Himself will give you counsel and He will cause your spirit within to instruct you in the night seasons. I know some of you are going through a season of night and darkness right now, but Jesus wants to instruct you. He wants to give you counsel, and He wants to show you, but there's a temptation to trust in other things right now. There's a temptation to get a second word. In Isaiah, when He prophesies this in Isaiah, He comes at a time when they were saying, you know what, Lord, we know you said this, and we know that you told us to repent of our sins, but let's go to the spiritists, let's go to the mediums, let's go to those who practice witchcraft. This is in Isaiah 5. Let's go to those who practice witchcraft. Let's see if anybody else has a different word, God. And that's what we do today in our world. Well, we know God said that, but maybe over here somebody else has a different word. Maybe one of our political leaders has a different word. Maybe one of our scientists has a different word. And as much as I thank God for political leaders and scientists because He uses them, at the end of the day, if they go against God's word, I'm not going with them. I don't need a second word. I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from the Lord on many of these issues. And so God's counsel comes in so many ways. God's counsel comes through friendships. It comes through parents. It comes through counselors. It comes through social workers and pastors. And we need to be listening to God for all the ways that His wisdom comes because it comes in a variety of ways. But what Advent does is it opens us up to say, look, and here's the thing. You know, I, you, we can make statements, and this is what I tell people all the time. It's okay for us to have different opinions, isn't it? Like, I come in here and I just told you I was politically conservative. Well, you know, there are people in here that if they were Democrats, they'd be like, well, we can't go to church there anymore. 
And this is the attitude that we can have differing views on these issues and still gather around and say, we don't have it all figured out, but we've got God who can give us counsel and lead us by His Word and lead us by His Spirit. And what, it's all, what we need to do is come in humility and say, we don't have all the answers. But we know of a God who does, and we're willing to wait on Him and open our hearts for Him to speak to us. Advent is a time where God invites you to come and wait for His Word to be revealed to your heart. He says, wait on the promises of God. Saturate yourself in the promises of God, and He will direct you. He is a wonderful counselor. Thirdly, He will uphold us with His might. He will be called Mighty God, He says. And I love this because I don't know where y'all are at, but I feel like at least 50% of the time I'm at my wit's end. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else there is like, you know what? I just don't know if I can go on. Anybody else get there pretty easy? I, I get there. I get done preaching every Sunday and I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. I think to myself, my God, what did I say? <laughs> at least half the people now hate me. They'll never come back, Lord. It's going to be awful. And I'm at my wit's end, and, then I, you know, and there's things that happen, and I think, Lord, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to carry on? And what the Lord reminds me of is, son, you don't have to be the one that has all the power. You don't have to be the one that has all the strength, because my name is Mighty God. And you can learn to be strong, not in yourself or in your own wisdom or your own ability or your own longevity and endurance. You can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And see, the thing about Christianity that people don't realize, people say, well, you know, I mean, I know, Clay, I'm not a Christian. I'm an atheist, but, you know, everybody needs a crutch. And you know what I respond is this ain't a crutch. This is a gurney, son. I ain't just limping with it. He got me on a hearse carrying my dead carcass out of here. Because he's going to raise me up by his resurrection power. This that I'm living is not something that I can do even with my limp. I've given him my entire life. I'm a dead man that he's raised up by the power of the Spirit. And when I come to my wit's end, I'm at a good place because it says that in, his, in my weakness, his strength shall be perfected. He's the mighty God. And some of you, you've got to come to a place. You're wore out. And you know why? Because you think you have to control this thing. You think you've got to control this and make this happen and make that happen. And if you let go of it, somehow something bad's going to happen and you'll lose control. And God's saying, I wish you'd just let me hold that thing. I wish you'd just cast your cares upon me. I wish you'd just release control of that to me and trust me because I'm your father. I'm your father and I got more power than you could ever imagine. And you need to confess your weaknesses. That you are out of control. That you can't do this on your own. And when you finally do, well, you know what that's called? It's called humility. And the Bible says he gives grace to the humble. It's pride to try to hold on and control everything. He says, humble yourself and God will release the power of the kingdom into your life. He will uphold us with His might because His name is Mighty God. 9.6, it says that He's not only the Mighty God, but He's the Everlasting Father. And number four, He will lovingly father us forever. He has strength and power, but see... He brings that to us in love and tenderness. And I think the greatest revelation, God has so many names in the Old Testament, so many names. But when Jesus shows up, in the Old Covenant, the main name of God was Yahweh. It was a four-letter Hebrew word. They wouldn't even write it. It was so holy and so pure. But in the New Covenant, when, when Jesus shows up, He primarily refers to Yahweh God as Abba, Father God. 
because he's revealing a God who loves us more than you could ever imagine. A father that cares for us, a father that nurtures us. He, he teaches parables and he says, this father is a father who will leave the 99 to go after the one. And you know what I love about this loving father? Is that the son, he's out half wild, covered in pig slop, and the only reason he goes back to his father is because he's hungry. He don't, it's not even out of love for his father or he misses his father. But you know what? The father knows his motives that he's only coming home because he's hungry and yet the father still runs out to meet him, kisses his neck, falls on him and hugs him because he just wants his son back home. He don't care what your motives are when you come. He just wants you to come because this is your heavenly father who loves you. And in the world that's broken, the thing that is going to give you the strength that you need is to know how loved by your Father that you are. Jesus reveals this God. He comes and reveals this God as an everlasting Father, an eternal Father. And we interpret God most of the time. And even our difficulties, just like what Jeremy said this morning, oftentimes when you go through difficulties, you go through sickness, you go through pain, it's easy for us to interpret God through a harsh lens. And say, well, why, why is he bringing this on me? What have I done? He must be mad at me. He must be punishing me. Do you know that as a child of God, Jesus Christ took every punishment that you could ever deserve? He did it and said, it's finished so that you can know no matter what you're going through, it is not your father punishing you any longer. Your father will bring loving correction to you. He will direct your steps. He will give you correction. He'll give you even a rebuke on occasion. But he will not punish you with those things. Because Jesus bore that punishment on the cross. But see, we get this lens of God that He's angry, that He's harsh, that He's rejected us, that He's hateful. But see, this is a God who's loving, tender, compassionate, and He suffers with us in our brokenness. And He desires our ultimate flourishing. And His main goal is that we would be shaped into the image of Jesus, His Son. And one day, He's going to make that flourishing permanent in the government that's without end. And here's the last one. Number five. He's the Prince of Peace, and He will rule with a peace to quiet the chaos of our lives. Now, I just love the fact that in the end, He's going to come back to a new Jerusalem. Can I tell you all a crazy story? This came to my mind. Sometimes if a crazy story comes to my mind, I'm just going to tell it. I'm going to out myself here how dumb I was when I was a kid. I had, uh, when I was a kid, I got a tattoo right here on my arm. Amen. I was a teenager, and I went, and my buddies, and back then I used to, you know, I used to be on the sauce, y'all. You know what I'm talking about? I made bad decisions. I didn't have the counsel of God. I was under the influence of inebriation a lot of times. And I got a tattoo, and I didn't like it, and I was under the influence of inebriation once again, and I burnt that thing off my arm. I know that's crazy. I'm about 16 years old, something like that. I burnt that thing off my arm. And I remember later on in life when I got saved, I had a dream one night. And this is crazy. But in this dream, see, that scar represents something to me. It represents my fallenness. It represents just how broken I was, how crazy I was, how I didn't have, I didn't have God. I didn't know God. I had no peace in my heart. I was looking for something, and I did, I did the most foolish things. And no, there was no rhyme or reason to some of the things that I did. I mean, I was so ignorant. 
with no counsel, with no wisdom, with no guidance to help me through what was going on in the inner, inner turmoil of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. I was surrounded by good people. I, have good, I had good parents that would lead me, but that's not the point. They're not Jesus. And so I made that decision. I did that, and it, it heals up. But I had this dream one night that I was in a tattoo parlor. <laughs> And in this tattoo parlor, I'm looking at it, and I said, you know, I said to this guy in the tattoo parlor, I said, you know, this scar on my arm, it just represents something in my past that's, that's not good. And, and, and I, just, I, want it, I want it covered up because I don't want to see this scar anymore. And I said, I just don't know what to get over it. And he said, well, of course you know what to get over it. And I said, well, no, I don't. He said, yeah, you do. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, you're going to get the city of Jerusalem. And I woke up from that dream, and it was like... My heart was pounding because it seemed so real to me. And, 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 and I, so I got up and I started getting in the Bible and I read scriptures about Jerusalem and about the new Jerusalem and how David said, Lord, let my right hand forget its skill if I forget you, O Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is not simply a city in Israel. Jerusalem is an ideal. Jerusalem means a foundation of peace. A foundation of peace. And when Jesus establishes his kingdom, what did John say he saw? He said, I saw a new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And that's where he's going to rule and reign from. He's not going to rule and reign from the White House in Washington, D.C., y'all. He's going to rule and reign from the new Jerusalem, the foundation of peace, that which God established in the beginning, which is fully restored once again. And he says, everything that's been broken, your past when you was a teenager and you made crazy decisions, he said, I'm now establishing you in peace and I'm covering over every crazy thing that you've done. And I'm going to give you wisdom and counsel and I'm going to give you might and power to do what I've called you to do. And I'm going to take on the government on my shoulders and you're going to rule and reign with me forever and ever. That's good news, isn't it? And when we talk about this peace, man, we, what we need more than anything this Christmas season is we need the peace of God. And when we talk about peace, there's really two kinds of peace. There's one where there just isn't any bad things happening externally. And thank God when there's not. Sometimes I'm just waiting on the next call of some kind of tragedy or disaster, I feel like. But all of those things are going to continue to happen. But biblical peace is a defiant peace that is something deep in your heart regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of what's happening on the outside. And we're waiting on this kingdom that brings ultimate peace, but God is saying in the midst of the darkness, I want to bring that peace into your heart now because I'm the Prince of Peace. And that peace will be a sign and an indicator to this broken world that another kingdom is coming, an upside-down kingdom is coming where you don't fear the things that are coming on this world because your king is from another kingdom and of his government and peace there will be no end. And many of you, you need that peace in your hearts right now. Amen. We're going to receive communion in just a minute, but I want you to bow your heads. I want to pray for us first. Many of you, you need that peace. Many of you, you need that salvation and you need to turn to the Lord right now and it's time for you to do so and you know it. And if that's you, as an act of faith, right now you say, it's time for me to give my life to Jesus. I want to follow Him. I sense the Spirit of God drawing me so that I can experience peace with God and eternal life and salvation that comes only in Jesus. Would you raise your hand high just so I can see it and I can pray for you? Anybody here? Anybody here? Amen. The rest of us, 
We may need counsel. We may need the mighty God to show up and give us strength that we don't have on our own. We may need to just once again sense the love of our Father for us. But we may need this peace that only He can give. We may need it all. We do. But see, this is the King that does just those things. And so, Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we ask for your Spirit to come in each heart. And as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, receive communion, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would speak to each one. God, that you would manifest peace in their hearts. God, you'd give them the counsel that they need, the wisdom and the direction that they need. Lord, that you would love them right now in this moment like the tender, compassionate Father that you are and that you would bring salvation and healing into their hearts, God. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We trust you for what you're doing. And we give you the glory for it in Jesus' name.